Well, if you are joining us for the first time in a while, or perhaps you're new here, uh, what you might not know is that we are in week two of a six-week journey through Lent, and we are tackling the hard topic of evil throughout our journey in the Lenten season. It's no small task, and we are setting about to answer some of the formidable questions that arise when we consider the darkness in our world, the places where pain and struggle and strife seem to make themselves known, how does evil come about? Is God responsible for it? What is our response to it? And we started off on a journey through some of those questions last week and are going to pick up where we left off this past week. Now, before we begin, I wanted to ask all of you, just a quick question. How many of you have ever tried to blame somebody else for something perhaps that you've done wrong? I'm sure nobody here has. I'm sure I'm the only one who's, who's done that. You know, in our house, every night before dinner, it's a bit of a, uh, a snack feeding frenzy at our house. I feel like I'm feeding fish at the Shedd Aquarium sometimes. I've got three children, and around bedtime, everybody decides they're hungry. And we have a, an old-fashioned glass candy jar on our counter with one of those metal lids on it that makes an unmistakable ding every time somebody tries to lift off the lid. You cannot lift the lid off the candy jar without mom or dad hearing that you're lifting the lid off the candy jar. And normally, we indulge our, our kids. It's bedtime. There's three children in our house. Go ahead, have a piece of candy, have a little snack, and then go on up to bed. But woe to the snack monster who has not eaten his or her dinner and tries to get at the candy. And now during dinner, we lay it out for our children like many parents lay the rules out for their children. Eat the vegetables, eat the chicken, or there will be a penalty for refusing to do so. And that penalty will be denied access to the candy jar. And they know this. And when they refuse to eat, we make sure they very clearly have a picture of the choices. You have a choice. Finish dinner or skip the snack later. Which one do you want? And so then when we find ourselves denying later one of our children access to the treat jar, it's always confounding to me how somehow this is my fault, right? What do you mean I can't have a snack? Why are you being so mean to me, mom or dad? And we'll explain that you didn't eat your dinner. You made the choice to leave the food untouched on the plate. So now go back and finish up the now cold sitting on the counter for two hours meal. Or don't have a snack. My daughter once threw herself on the kitchen floor and wailed, You are ruining my life! (laughs) It's my fault, clearly, that she chose not to eat the carrots. Mom, you're the worst. How could you possibly do this to me? You get the picture, right? Again, I'm sure this has never happened in your home or your workplace. I'm sure the inability to finish a project has never been somebody else's fault when maybe it was probably a little bit ours, or a missing homework assignment, a task in a classroom or at home that just didn't get finished. Adam and Eve did this in the garden. 
after they made the ill-fated decision to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, after God had said to them, look, don't do this, for then your eyes will be open, you will know good from evil, there will be a consequence for choosing to do this. Adam and Eve did it anyway, and then immediately launched themselves into the blame game. In Genesis 3, the Lord called to the man, where are you? And he answered, oh, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? What does the man do? He goes, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And the Lord God then said to the woman, what is this you have done? She basically said, not so fast, not my fault. The serpent that you put here in the garden, he deceived me, and then I ate. God, it's your fault because I was afraid of you and I hid. It was her fault. It was the serpent's fault. Who's to blame for evil? Understandably, when hard things come and happen in this world, we shake our fist at heaven and we look at God and we say, how could you on your watch, that blood God is on your hands. How could you purposefully do this to me, to us, to the people that I love? The reality is God does not sit on the throne of heaven and willingly injure and cast evil down on our lives. It is not God's fault. Try as we might to ascribe him blame. We have boundaries. We have been given the rules. And for all of human history, we choose time after time after time, again, to push the boundaries on those rules, to make the decisions that we feel like making, that feel good to us at the time, and then we shake our fists at God, and blame the Lord himself when it goes wrong. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses takes time to lay out for the people of God boundaries. God uses Moses to provide a picture of what the community of Israel is going to be about when they head into the next milestone of their faith journey. And that's the text I want to spend some time in today. If you have a scripture, copy the scriptures in the pew in front of you. Deuteronomy chapter 30 is where we're going to be. Now, most of us are familiar-ish with Moses. He's the leader of God's people. He's led the people of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. He's led them through 40 years of a journey in the wilderness he has helped them find their way through the ravages of slavery. He's helped them order their community life together. The book of Deuteronomy is largely rule setting and boundary setting, not for the sake of rules themselves, but for the ordering of community life. It's how the people of God are to be together. And it is in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that Moses, God, is used by, God uses Moses to lay out the Ten Commandments. It is in Deuteronomy 6 that we have the famous Jewish prayer called the Shema that Jesus picked threads up of in the New Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. There are boundaries. Life has been ordered throughout the book of Deuteronomy. 
And at the end of the book, Moses goes out to these people that he has led and labored for his whole life and says, I'm now 120 years old, and I am no longer able to lead you, the scripture says. And he's about to hand the reins of his leadership over to Joshua, young Joshua, who's going to take then this community and lead them across the River Jordan into the promised land that they've been working and moving toward for well over a hundred years. And this is what Moses says. In Deuteronomy 30, chapter, verse 11, he says, Now I'm, what I'm commanding you today, what I'm about to tell you today, is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. And he says, it's not so far in the heavens that you can't get it. It's not so far up the mountains that you can't get it. And then he says in verse 14, no, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. I have set before you today choices. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. And then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering, the journey you are on, the land you are now about to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient... And if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. You will not have access to the treat jar. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, Moses says to them. So that your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God and listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And the story goes on. They cross the river and they don't listen. Because this is human nature, right? It all sounds good when... You first hear it. And I imagine the community gathered around Moses receiving these words from God was probably nodding their head. Yeah, we've got this. We can do this. And then the first shiny object comes along and their hearts are betrayed and they're led astray. And darkness enshrouds them and their choices unleash evil upon one another and upon their neighbors and upon the people in the land that they are to possess. And if you read the history of Israel, it is not pretty. There is war upon war, terror, famine, violence, abuse, because they, like we and like those before them, have said, no, thank you, God. I recognize you've ordered things in a certain way, but I just like it better, my way. Evil is made manifest in our world when we choose to act against God's purposes and push up and break through the boundaries that he's given us. Now, evil grieves God. Tragedy upon tragedy bestows us tears and loss, grief, seemingly insurmountable chaos, 
Our culture then says, hey, it's going to be okay. Let's just keep moving on. We have this sort of happiness is everything mantra in our culture. And despite all of that, any of us who've suffered grief and loss know better. You are never the same after loss. And you have a prescribed grief period that is quite short in our culture. And we're expected to then just get on with it. But those of us who suffer know we never really get over it. Grief and evil change the shape of our heart. They change the shape of our lives. And God knows this. And he sits with us eternally in those places. And he is grief-stricken when tragedy strikes. Even though he is not the cause of it, he laments it and weeps with it for us. Jesus had great compassion, we're told. In Matthew 9, 36, we read that when he saw the crowds, the people gathered to hear something from him, the people who had come desperate for some hope or shred of light in their life, when they came, we're told he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were in the throes of chaos. They lived Lives where evil and tragedy wreaked chaos and havoc on their loved ones and the world they lived in. They were skittish, scared, afraid they were sheep without a shepherd. In John chapter 11, Jesus loses his very good friend, Lazarus. And you know what? Scripture says any child who's ever had to memorize a verse on the spot will tell you this one because it's the shortest verse in all of Scripture. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Really short verse, but wow, is there a lot in there. Loss. Evil. The evil of the curse of death and sin that came from the garden took the life of his friend Lazarus. And he had any... He had any device to process that at his fingertips. And Jesus, with a very human emotion, fully human, just wept. God grieves evil. He does not sit like a cosmic killjoy in the clouds, moving levers and orchestrating the events of our life to bring us evil. We played the game of life last night at home in my, with my family. And there's all these markers on the board where there's decisions to make, which direction to go in. There's possible tragedy that can befall you in that game. God is, we are not parts of a board game where God is just spinning the wheel or rolling the dice and just casting evil our way just haphazardly. What we suffer and what we struggle with comes to us because of the choices that we make, the sin in this world, and also because of the way God has ordered the universe. You know, gravity, the physical, natural world, the laws of physics, of biology, of chemistry, these are gifts from God. God has provided us a natural, ordered world. When he created the heavens and the earth, and he placed the stars in the sky, he created natural, physical laws by which we and the universe itself abides. These are tremendous blessings because all of us woke up this morning pretty much bolted to the floor, right? Or the bed. 
What would it be like if you woke up floating in space somewhere else, right? We have the law of gravity. That is a gift. The laws of physics. The law that will help a parent, perhaps, that has a toddler or a baby carriage that's about to roll out into the street that can go and stop, stop an object from moving, is the same law that will stop two cars that are careening towards each other until they wreck and crash into each other. And maybe then we find ourselves at a funeral we didn't anticipate to attend. There's good and there's evil in all of this. The radiation that microwaves your popcorn can mutate the human body. The laws of the physical world are not negotiable. And we live in a natural world under those laws. And the laws of nature that gave us a 60-degree day in February will also give us a tornado, a tsunami, anything else. And our physical bodies that can taste and touch and feel and indulge in tiramisu or a hug or a handshake can also unleash tragedy on another. And they're fallible human bodies. The heart does not beat forever. The legs do not move forever. These are the laws of the natural world that God created. And in them are both good and evil. And to experience the good means that there is a darker side that is possible. So this is not to say that it is God's fault when darkness comes to our natural world, but it is to say we live in an ordered universe, and you cannot have the good without the bad. Secondly, we live in a world that gives us free will. I've already alluded to this. C.S. Lewis writes so beautifully on the problem of evil and the struggle we have and the fact that we have choices that we can make. God has given us choices. Listen to what Lewis writes. God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go wrong or right. Some people think they can imagine a creature which was free but had no possibility of going wrong, but I can't. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad, and free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them, us, the creatures, free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. An automated world of creatures that worked like machines would hardly be worth creating. We get to make a choice. And that, my friends, is what makes love so beautiful. Think back, any of you, to your first crush when you were an adolescent, perhaps. Try as you might. You couldn't force that other person to like you or to notice you. And remember the tremendous feeling that would wash over you if he or she did turn their eye your way. You can't force these things. God does not force us to choose him. We have the opportunity to decide what we want to be about. Lucifer made a choice, advance the kingdom of God, or go in a dramatically different direction. Adam and Eve made the choice. The scripture 
we have before us, Moses is laying out for the people of Israel the choice. And very clearly saying, this is what's going to happen if you don't choose the way of God. But we have that free will. And so we cannot blame God for the poor choices that have been made. And the hardest part is that we suffer at the hands of choices that were not always ours to make. Some of the mass tragedies that have been suffered in our country, the war, the violence, the terror that has been part of human history since the beginning of time, many innocent victims of those tragedies did not make the choice to be a warmonger, but they were on the receiving end of it. But the reality is human beings, human nature made the choice early on to allow those things into our world, to allow evil in. Adam and Eve made the choice and it marked all of us. And I have the audacity to sometimes look at Adam and Eve and think, you couldn't have made a better choice there? I mean, if I was there in the garden, surely I would have chosen properly. No, (laughs) I mean, God started out with the best and the brightest. They had everything at their fingertips, and they had full access to the Lord himself. And they made the choice they made. How much more would we if we were there? And so that is the world that we have inherited. And so we have the chaos and the goodness of the natural order, and we have the evil and the good of our free will choices. God gives us one last choice. And that is the opportunity to either partner with him in overcoming evil or to be perpetrators of evil. You know, Moses struggled. His life leading Israel was not easy. He had blood on his hands. He had committed a murder very early on in his life. He watched firsthand as the people that were his flesh and blood were beaten and abused and forced through slavery. He had before him a community that consistently brought to him their lawsuits, their grievances, their violence, their abuse. If anybody could have looked at all of that and said, I'm done, I'm out, I am over leading what he called on many occasions a stiff-necked people, if anybody had the opportunity to just back off and move away from it all, it was Moses. And we know how this plays out. There are folks who in tragedy become stronger, become closer to those they love, they move toward good, and there are folks that because of evil and tragedy separate themselves and lose out on any partnership with God in the process. And every single one of us, every day, have the opportunity to make choices. When we get out of bed, we can ask ourselves, what do I want to be about today? Which is easier said than done when you are in the throes of tragedy and evil seems to be pursuing you from all sides. And so when we struggle... How do we find our way through it? Do we grasp the hand of God who has never left us in the darkness alone? Or do we choose an alternate path away from God? How will I, how will you, how will we exercise the free will we've been given? 
What will we do when we see evil unleashed? What can we do to partner with God and with one another to move through it? The movement toward God is why it was an alcoholic who founded AA. It's why organizations aimed at preventing domestic violence and abuse are often founded by survivors of abuse themselves. It's why Clara Barton, who founded the American Red Cross, was a Civil War nurse and had seen the ravages of the battlefield. It's why our own care and counseling ministries right here at Christ Church of Oak Brook are led by survivors of the very traumas they seek to help people walk through, the loss of loved ones, of a child, the grief and agony that comes in those moments. It's why one of my closest friends who has struggled with a particular issue most of her life will say to me in confidence, if you ever meet anybody who needs my number, who struggles with what I have, tell them they can call me. You don't even have to ask my permission first. It's why there's a man named Sam Granillo. He's now 31 years old, but when he was a 17-year-old high school student, he was laying on the floor of Columbine High School, listening to shots being fired out around his school, hoping that he would survive, and he did. And fast forward almost two decades later, and he launched a documentary project. He wanted to find out what was happening in communities that had struggled through mass tragedy long after the press and the news cameras had moved from that tragedy to another one. And what he found as he traveled and as he interviewed was that in community after community after community who had struggled with such dark evil, so many organizations had been launched in those communities to combat the very evil that those communities faced. And the tenacity and the wherewithal of the people in those places to commit themselves to the good of the whole, and in many times, faith-based organizations partnering together to unite with God and one another and combat, with, combat the evil. This is why we can do those things. So God is not responsible for evil. He gives us a prescription to overcome it. And we then have the opportunity, when the world that we inhabit doesn't seem to make sense to us anymore, and when choices have been made out of free will to pursue evil, we have that other choice to move then and partner with God for good. The end of Deuteronomy 30, Eugene Peterson, in his message version of Scripture, reads verses 19 and 20 this way. And he says again, I place before you life and death. I, God, through Moses, I place before you life and death, good and evil, blessings and curse. Choose life so that you and your children will live and love God, your God, listening obediently to him and firmly embracing him. Hebrews 11 says this, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. And so, my friends, in the evil and the tragedy and the chaos of this world, 
Faith is the hope that the boundaries of God and the goodness of God are still there. So let us cling tight to that. And let us make the choices that God asks us over and over to make on his behalf and on behalf of one another so that we can move from darkness into light. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you do gift us with opportunity to choose every day how we want to be in your world. Lord, we are finite creatures who are subject to a marvelous creator. So, Lord, let us live in that direction. Let us move through this life, not shaking our fist at you and blaming you for the choices that we have made. But let us instead, Lord, embrace the goodness that can be found even in tragedy and move ourselves to becoming a people who have our faith and our trust and our hope ultimately in your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen.